0: So I'm going to talk about self-control today. And I'm looking forward to this message talking about self-control. If, if you've been here over the last year, you know that I said this year we're talking about three different topics this entire year. We're either talking about the gifts of the Holy Spirit or spiritual formation or spiritual conflict. So today we're going to be talking a little bit about spiritual formation just to remind you spiritual formation is a process that we go through to become more like Jesus. So we're going to talk about self-control today. And I would realize when we talk about self-control, that can make a lot of people a little bit nervous. Because when you talk about self-control, people usually think, okay, what am I going to tell you that you need to do? What is the list of things that you're going to have to do to gain some self-control or gain some self-discipline in your life? That's not my plan today. I'm not going to tell you about what any steps that you need to do. Instead, I want you to ask the question, what is God going to do for you to help you develop self-control in your life? Or what's God going to do in you to help you develop some self-discipline in your life? I want you to think about what God's going to do for you, not on what you have to do yourself. Because today I want you to take the pressure off yourself and to put the pressure on the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit is the one who is ultimately going to give you the ability to develop the fruit of self-control in your life. So the pressure needs to be on the Holy Spirit, not on yourself. So let me explain a little bit more about how that's going to work. Says many of you know that the Bible and Christianity is about our freedom to have a relationship with God that Jesus provides for you. So if God is going to grant us this freedom, how will we develop self-control? How will self-control be developed in your life? Now I think the answer might surprise you. The answer is not a list of things that you have to do or don't do. Instead, the answer is going to be God's going to do it for you. Now, I realize that answer is a little bit counterintuitive because usually when we talk about self-control, you think, well, what does self have to do? But instead, we're going to do the focus on Jesus today. Some of you are aware of a really good book called Essentialism by Greg McKeown. It's a secular book, but it's a great book on leadership and leadership strategy. I recommend the book, but it is a secular book. So in this book, this best-selling author talks about, he he has the observation that many people who appear to be very well-disciplined often are not at all. But what they have going for them is the self-awareness that they're not very disciplined at all. So in their humility to they realize they're not a very self-disciplined person and they realize that they can make a lot of poor choices, what they do is they eliminate the poor choices that they could make. Instead, they only focus on they only have one option left. So really their process of self-control is to eliminate every poor choice that you can make so you're just stuck with doing the one thing. That's actually a pretty good strategy if you want to focus on just doing the right thing. But that's not the strategy that Jesus has for us. His strategy isn't for us to eliminate every poor decision in our life. Instead, he has a better decision for us. And this ability is going to be, able to, I'll talk about that a little later. But before I talk about Jesus' the strategy for us, I want to draw your attention to a proverb. In Proverbs 25, verse 28, it says this. It says, a man without self-control is like a city whose walls have been broken through. A person without self-control is like a city whose walls have been broken through. See, in the Bible, walls of a city carry a lot of significance. They were symbols of safety. They were symbols of security. They were signs of protection. A healthy and a strong city in the Old Testament time had strong walls around them so the people inside of the city would feel safe. So you can imagine the walls of the city. They would keep out wild animals. They would keep out people that don't need to be in the city. So you can see why the walls were important because they protect everything on the inside. And that's the picture that the Proverbs is giving to us, that self-control, self-discipline in our life protects everything on the inside. That if we don't have a layer of self-discipline or self-control surrounding us, everything on our inside is at risk. There's a potential to be taken advantage of or taken to be harmed, or able to hurt. So in the Bible, walls are extremely important, and self-discipline is so very important. It's so important that God is not going to say to you, hey, you know what? You need self-discipline in your life. It's very important. So you know what? You guys figure out how to do it. Do it on your own. God's not going to do that. Instead, he's going to say, I'm going to intervene in your life In a very strategic way, so you develop self-control in your life. Because if you don't have it, everything inside of you is going to become at risk. And that's God's plan, is to give you self-control that's going to protect everything inside of you. So how is he going to do that? But before I do that, I want to answer the question of what is God's actual goal for your life? In Galatians 5, which is a chapter where we get the fruit of the Holy Spirit, Paul says this in verse 22 and 23. He said, the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in your life, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There's where you get the fruit of the Spirit, self-control. And you notice fruit of the Spirit of self-control is at the end of the list, because again, I think it's what holds everything inside of the list together. See, that's God's plan for your life, that the Holy Spirit would produce this fruit in your life. Why? To make you more like Jesus. This is a list of all the attributes of Jesus, and God's goal is that those attributes would become part of our own life. And so then what do we do as we become like Jesus? Matthew 20, verse 28 says it well, for Jesus came not to be served, but to serve others and to give his life as a ransom for many. Very simply, why did Jesus come? To serve other people. Why does God develop in us the fruit of the Holy Spirit? So we could serve other people. And some of you that are faithful followers of Jesus Christ, you know that this fruit of the Holy Spirit sometimes takes a long time to develop in your life. I think we all wish that that fruit would just be developed instantaneously. You become a Christian, you follow Jesus, poof, it all happens. But I think most of us can testify, it doesn't really happen that easy. So it raises a question, if this is God's goal for your life, to develop the fruit of the Holy Spirit, to serve other people, why doesn't it happen faster? Why does it take so long? In chapter 4 of Galatians, Paul explains why. He says to us, before you knew God, you were slaves to so-called gods that did not exist. So now that you know God, or should I say now that God knows you, why do you want to go back again and become slaves once more to the weak and useless spiritual principles of the world? See, this is an interesting chapter that Paul is saying. Before he talks about the fruit of the Holy Spirit, Paul reminds us of what our life looked like without Jesus. Paul says, "Before we belonged to Jesus, we didn't belong to Jesus. We belonged to the kingdom of darkness. And Jesus came in our life at such the strategic time to purchase away, purchase us from the plans of the enemy, so that we would no longer belong to the enemy, but we would be probably be." children of God. And that's his plan. So that's what Paul is bringing up in this chapter. He's reminding us that at one time we did not belong to Jesus, but Jesus came at the strategic time and purchased our life. And Paul's talking about freedom. And he's reminding us you now belong to Jesus. You now have this new life with Jesus. Why would you want to go back to this other way of living? And so he raises the question in there, and I think all of us know what that tension is like. One author describes that we have sort of a civil war going on inside of us with our desires. On the one hand, we want to follow God. We want to do what God's called us to do. But on the other hand, we want to serve ourselves. God's called us to serve him, but at times we like to serve ourselves, and we like to figure out what would the things that I could do that would make me happy. So often we live our life with this tug of war between the tension of doing what God has called us to do, or doing what would serve ourselves. I think we all understand what that's like. I think one of the, the best illustrations is when it comes to finances, on the one hand, we all would like to be extremely generous. We'd all like to give away more money. And the problem is, sometimes we get some finances and it's easy to think, I'll do that next week. We know what that struggle's like between trying to do what God's called us to do and then serving yourself. Or it comes even in the areas of showing kindness. We want to show kindness to people, we want to show uh, uh, compassion to other people. But then we'll gossip about people or we'll say things about people that we never intended to. You know what it's like to live with that tension between you want to do the right thing, but sometimes you just don't. The Apostle Paul was really honest about that in Romans 7. And he said, I really don't understand myself, for I want to do what is right, but I don't. Instead, I do what I hate. I think we've experienced that tension in our life. You're like, I really set out to do the right thing, but then I don't. But what was Paul's comfort in all of it? What was Paul's comfort in the midst of his weaknesses? In 2 Corinthians 12, he says, each time I asked God about it, he said, my grace is all you need. My power works best in your weakness. So now I can glad to boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ can work through me. That's an unusual statement that Paul made. He said, my weaknesses are actually my commodity. My weakness is actually what gives me access to the power of God working in my life. It's through Paul's humility he recognized, yeah, I might want to do the wrong thing. I might struggle with that temptation, but that temptation reminds me that I'm a weak person, and my weakness gives me humility, and that gives me access to the power of God working through my life. So instead of letting his weakness wipe him out, Paul said, how can I use that to my advantage? And Paul allowed that to develop humility in his life so he could go to God and say, I need your help. So Paul understood his weakness was his best way to get God's help in his life. So how, again, is this going to happen? But before I get there, I want to tell you why it's going to happen. See, before Paul talked about the fruit of the Holy Spirit, a few uh, verses before the fruit of the Holy Spirit, he says, For you have been called to live in freedom, my brothers and sisters, But don't use your freedom to satisfy your sinful nature. Instead, use your freedom to serve one another in love. For the whole law can be summed up in one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Before Paul's going to talk about the fruit of the Holy Spirit, he's going to tell you why you've been given freedom. Why you've been given the fruit of the Holy Spirit. And again, it is to serve other people. And Paul brings it up. We serve other people and we love our neighbors as ourselves. And I think on a day that we celebrate Juneteenth, it's a good day to remember that. It's a good day to remember that God has given us freedom to love other people and to show compassion to other people. The reason God is developing self-control in our life to guard our own lives is so we can bless other people, so we can encourage other people. And the greatest thing that we can do for another person is to love them and to show them acceptance and to show them kindness. And I think there's a responsibility on all of us to work a little harder at that right now, especially in light of Juneteenth, and to look back and to think of some of the things that people have done in the name of God. Some of the things that people have done to hurt other people, you just look back and you think, how did they do that? How do these people claim to be Christians but participate so heavily in slavery? Some of it is hard to really understand. And I think we have a responsibility as followers of Jesus to show the love and compassion of Christ, to show the kindness of God to the people that we meet. I think a lot of people have done a lot of damage in the name of Jesus, and I think we get the opportunity to set it right. So I think we need to be extra compassionate and loving and kindness. And that's one of the reasons I love Donna's project so much, of putting in our trees on this campus names of people that have died through COVID to show people we care and we have compassion. So many people are suffering right now throughout our country. Well, the nations of the world are suffering because they didn't grieve properly during COVID. They didn't have funerals. They didn't have proper uh, people coming over after a person died to show them kindness or to bring them a casserole. People missed out on so much the last two years. It's not just the death of people, but it's death of dreams. And we find we living in a country right now that is dealing with a lot of depression. And we have the opportunity as a little church on a hill to show mercy to our community, to show mercy to our state and hopefully to the nations of the world. Hopefully our project will draw a lot of attention, not because we need attention, but to show compassion, to show that Christ stands with people when they are suffering. And that's what we get to do. This is an art project because it's cool, it's art, but it's way deeper than an art project. It's a project that's designed to bring healing to our country and to our city and to the neighbors. And so we've invited people, send in your weathergram. If you have more questions about this after the service, talk to Donna, but send in your weathergrams. We want to see the names of people that died during COVID strung throughout our trees so we can pray for these families, so families can find healing and restoration. And that is not just what we're going to do. That's what we're called to do. That's part of serving other people, and that's the way we get to serve other people for however long this project's going to go on. We have a lot of trees, is what Donna keeps saying. So who knows how long we're going to do that. But that's why we have got God's giving us self-control to take care of what's inside of us so the love and the compassion, the mercy and kindness in us can be shown to other people. So how is all this going to happen? How does God give us self-control to protect us? There's four ways that this could happen. Now the first way, and I got a little help from New Life Fellowship in New York City on this list. There's four ways, common ways, that people think that we develop self-control in our life. The first way is kind of the Eastern philosophy way. It's more of the Eastern tradition. The Eastern philosophy tradition would say the problem that people have is your desires. You have bad desires on the inside of you. So you need to go through a process where you offload your bad desires. You know, in like the Eastern tradition, there's a lot of different meditations or ritualistic practices you go through. And the whole idea is get rid of your bad desires on the inside. If you get rid of your bad desires on the inside, then suddenly you will have self-control that's eastern meditation's strategy to develop self-control now the western philosophy which is more what we have in the united states and we see our country trending towards this philosophy is you got to embrace your desires that's a common belief in our country embrace your desires do what you desire and then just sort it sort it out in the end You kind of figure out what your desires, participate in your desires, that's how you're going to discover who you truly are. So don't really say no and don't really resist, just embrace your desires, work through them, and then see what happens. That's kind of the trending view in our culture. Then there's a third way that people look at developing um, self-control. That's more the religious way. That's for people who like to go to church but don't really have a relationship with Jesus. It's kind of churchy people but no relation. And their way is, well, you just resist. You just resist and that's how you practice self-control. Maybe read a few self-help books. So these three ways are just common ways that people deal with self-control until Jesus comes along. And Jesus says, I have an alternative alternative way for you to develop self-control. And Jesus' strategy for you to develop self-control is that he would become your ultimate desire. That Jesus comes on board and he says, you know what, I am going to replace every desire that you have and I'm going to become the ultimate desire that you could ever experience. You're not going to have to ignore your other desires. You're not going to have to pretend that they don't exist. But I will become such a desire for you that you're not going to want to desire anything else. Jesus' plan in your life is to become so big in your life that everything else fails in comparison. I'll be honest with you. I don't crave cheap steaks at Denny's. I have no desire to go to Denny's and get a steak for $11.99 with a side of pancakes. That does nothing for me because I've been to the chop house in downtown Grand Rapids. I've been to Roost Chris downtown Grand Rapids and I've had a real steak. Once you've had a real steak, you don't go back to any place else and get another steak. Suddenly you become a little bit of a steak snob. I've had a good steak. I'm not going to eat any other steak. That's what Jesus is going to do in your life he's going to show you he can satisfy every single need and desire and want in your life that you don't want anything but Jesus. That's his strategy to give you self-control. You're going to want him more than anything else. That's nothing that you could do on your own. But that's something that he's going to do in your life through the power of the Holy Spirit. He is going to make himself so big in your life that everything else, your temptation, you will resist because Jesus is better. And it will become easier as you partake more of it because it's so much better than anything else. See, Galatians 5, 16, right before we're going to finally get to the list of the fruit of the Spirit, it says, so I say to you, let the Holy Spirit guide your lives. Then you won't be doing what your sinful nature craves. Let the Holy Spirit guide your life. Then you won't be doing what your sinful nature craves. The sinful nature wants to do what is evil, which is just the opposite of what the Spirit wants. And the Spirit gives us desires that are the opposite of what the sinful nature desires. These two forces are constantly fighting against each other so you are not free to carry out your good intentions. Notice what Paul just said. You still have the struggle with your desires. You have the godly desires and you have the not so godly desires and you're constantly fighting in them. There's that constant civil war going inside of you. But what God says I'm going to do, this is your plan for your self-control, is that number one, I'm going to guide your life. And number two, Jesus is going to give you a better desire. That's how you develop self-control in your life. The Holy Spirit leads you, and God gives you a better desire, which is Jesus. And that's a simple plan. That's a pretty simple plan. That's a lot easier than trying to do a lot of self-help books. Let the Holy Spirit guide your life and let Jesus become the better option. And so then, in the next verse, Paul tells us what a life looks like without the fruit of the Holy Spirit. He says, when you follow the desires of your sinful nature, the results are very clear. Sexual immorality, impurity, lustful pleasures, idolatry, sorcery, hostility, quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambitions, dissension, division, envy, drunkenness, wild parties, and other sins like these. Let me tell you again, as I stated before, that anybody living that sort of life will not inherit the kingdom of God. So Paul's saying that is on one side of the equation. That's what sometimes we naturally desire. But he said the opposite side of the equation is a fruit of the Holy Spirit, which is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And these are the two lists in our life. These are the two wars that we have going on constantly. Are we going to lean to one list or lean to the other list? And God says your plan is simple the Holy Spirit's going to lead your life and Jesus is going to become the greater desire. But one of the big areas that people trip up in this understanding of the fruit of the Holy Spirit in this verse where God says that he will come and he will give you new desires is they expect that all the old desires are going to go away. That suddenly when you follow Jesus, every old desire is going to go away. But the scripture doesn't say that. It says Jesus is going to give you the opposite desire. That's why the scripture says that there's a choice between the two that you're going to make. We would all like it, once again, if all the poor, all the, the, the list of all the desires of sinful nature, they would go. But it doesn't always happen that way. God can remove some of them, but some of us have to deal with the tension of living between or living between the, the choices that we have to make. And so often in church culture, we like to pretend or we like to get a little extra biblical. And tell people that you follow Jesus, that whole list of lustful desires, idolatry, sorcery, hostility, that's all going to go away. That doesn't happen. That's called extra-biblical when we tell people that will happen. Instead, what's going to happen is Jesus is going to become the greatest desire. So it's easier for you to choose to live in self-control instead of struggling with what's on the other list. Quite often, it's our own struggle Our own civil war, the temptation between the two lists, is actually an indication that Jesus is working in your life. It's an indication that Jesus is working because there is a struggle. If there wasn't a struggle, that would mean the Holy Spirit's not working in your own life. And that's the beautiful thing about the Holy Spirit develops these fruit of the Holy Spirit in your life. So I want to wrap up this message by talking about, well, what do we do? What is our whole responsibility in this? I mean, Jesus is the one who is going to give you the better better desire and the Holy Spirit's going to lead you, but what is our position? If the Holy Spirit's leading is the key, then how do we put ourselves in the best possible position to be led? We're going to need to be led. The mission statement of Lake Effect Church is that we would be a church of devoted followers of Jesus Christ. Now every church really should have this mission statement that we all become devoted followers of Jesus Christ because that is our goal. But how is that going to happen? See, over the years, I think the word Christian has really lost its power. It's lost its significance. It's lost its meaning. Christian's kind of a run down word lately. If you go back two thousand years ago, when Jesus had his first followers, they were called disciples. They were not called Christians. They were called disciples because the word disciples had a very powerful meaning back in the Greek language. If you were a follower of Jesus in the early days when Jesus walked the earth and you told people that you were a disciple, that was something very significant. In our culture, to say you're a disciple, so often we think that's a person that's just a student or maybe they're in a leadership development class, but a disciple in the first century meant that your entire life was focused around the person that was teaching you. Your entire life, your social life, everything about your life was focused on the one that was leading you. Because in the first century, if you're a disciple of a teacher, your goal wasn't to learn everything they were teaching you, Your goal was to become exactly like your teacher. So when Jesus had his 12 disciples, their goal wasn't just to learn everything he could teach them. Their goal was to become exactly like the one that was teaching you. That's the significance. You wouldn't graduate from being a disciple. You would eventually become just like the one teaching you. So in Galatians 5, when it talks about a walk by the power of the Spirit, to walk by the power of the Spirit means... To walk in complete dependence on Jesus. And through the walking in complete dependence, that's when the fruit of the Holy Spirit has grown in your life. And that's the picture that you see in the New Testament culture of being a disciple. Everything came down to the relationship. So in Jesus' day, it was kind of an interesting educational system. Jesus, as you know, was born in Bethany, but he settled most of his adult life in Galilee, in the city by the Sea of Galilee. This is a small town. Some people say maybe 600, maybe 1,000 people. But a short walk away from Galilee was a real huge megatown. There's a big town. It was kind of the metropolitan area of that Galilee area called Sothopolis. This was a big town, and it was kind of well-known as a, as a cultural center. It was a center that actually had museums, it had coliseums, it had big buildings, it was universities, there's a lot of higher education there. And a lot of people would assume Jesus would have hung out there, because that's where all the really smart and the really well-educated people were. But he didn't hang out there. Jesus hung out in a town called Galilee, and Galilee, even though it was maybe 600 to 1,000 people, it was known for people that their life revolved around God. And in Galilee, it was a smaller town, and so a lot of Jewish people lived there, and their life revolved around God. And the Jewish culture back in that day was a little bit different. You would have communities that would kind of share a lot in common. They would have, maybe their little houses would we close to each other and they might share a common kitchen or they would share a common courtyard. So people lived in these little community hubs. And the kids would go to school up until about age 12 or 13. And they'd go to school and learn the typical things that you would learn in school. But a big part of their education was to learn the Old Testament or to learn the first five books of the Bible. And part of these kids would study really hard and they would go through school and they would graduate at about 12 or 13. And after that, usually the girls would get married or the boys would maybe start a trade. But if you're a really good student in those days, If you're a really good student, one of the teachers might select you to continue on to higher education. And you would continue on to study the scriptures, not so much to learn math or reading, but to study the scriptures. So your goal for your son would be to be so good at his elementary area school that he would get called up into higher education. And then these kids would be in the higher education. Then your goal after that was that you were so smart You're such a good student of the Old Testament that you could say to your teacher, I want to be one of your disciples. And your teacher would see so much potential in you. They would say, okay, I'll be the rabbi and you can be my disciple. And that means you start living in a community kind of situation so that you spend all your time with your rabbi. That was the goal if you had a little boy in that Jewish culture. That your kid would be so smart that after they graduated from higher education, they could go before a rabbi and say, Can I be your disciple? And that rabbi would look at him and say, Yes, I see potential in you. I will allow you to be my student. And some of these kids, well, they didn't make it. They weren't good enough, they weren't qualified enough. Most people believe that Jesus' 12 disciples didn't make it that far, that nobody actually wanted to be their rabbi. They didn't show enough potential. They didn't show enough skill. They didn't show enough aptitude. That's kind of a pretty big letdown if you spent your life trying that someday you would go to a rabbi and say, can I be your student? Because a rabbi is not going to pick anybody. They want to see somebody that's very successful because they want to make sure that they are going to look better as well. So when Jesus comes around... He does something very different. He starts choosing people to follow him. He doesn't say to the other people, you have to come ask to follow me. He starts choosing who's going to follow him. Because Jesus suddenly says, you don't have to perform for me. You don't have to strive for me to show that you have potential. Instead, I can see the potential in you and I'm confident enough that I can become your desire. So I'm going to select you. And that's what Jesus did throughout his day. He walked through the villages and he chose person after person after person after person to follow him. Nobody had to impress him. Nobody had to prove to Jesus that they knew the scriptures or they had the aptitude or they had the discipline, but Jesus picked them because he knew that he could become the strongest desire in their life. And when Jesus would become their strongest desire, then they would have the self-discipline or the self-control to protect every single thing inside of them that God was doing. And that's the beautiful picture of the gospel, that God chose you. You didn't have to perform for him. God chose you because he saw the potential in you that you didn't even see in yourself. God chose you because he knew that he could lead you by the power of his Holy Spirit, and that you could be a servant, and that you could serve him and be a representation of him to the world. And that's the beautiful picture of the gospel. That's a beautiful picture of the compassion of Christ. I'll just say that's just fun. I've had fun today listening to you. I wish I understood your words just a little bit better, but I think I know who you're calling over and over. So thank you so much for coming. That's just fun. And everybody's enjoying this. So you've not been a distraction at all. It's actually very fun. So that's the beautiful picture of the gospel, is that nobody has to beg Jesus, would you please pick me? Am I good enough? Did I work hard enough? Did I study hard enough? Did I memorize the scriptures hard enough? Nobody has to say that. And so Jesus looks at you and says, come follow me, come follow me. Every person that meets Jesus, he says, come follow me. And he says, and I will give you everything you need. And that's why I said at the beginning of my, pressure, my message, you put the, pr- the pressure on Jesus. You put the pressure on the Holy Spirit. They're the ones that are going to do the work. Our job is to simply follow. Our style, job is to be completely dependent on God. And the best way to be dependent is when you realize your weaknesses. And that's the beautiful thing. I think we all feel very weak after these last couple of years you know, what's going on in the world. I think every person struggles right now. Difficulty, it's been hard, it's just discouraging. But that's the weakness that we can use as a commodity to depend on God to helping us. And that's what I want to leave you with today as we close up talking about the fruit of the Holy Spirit, is that God's developing in each of us, but that self-control is protecting each of us. So, amen. Let's pray. So, God, I thank you for bringing us here today, and I thank you, Lord, for this, this simple message, but a reminder that you always give us the better desire. God, I pray for each person here. I pray for the people that are listening online or will listen later in the week that you would bless them. God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would do a work in each of our lives to help us to be completely dependent on you. Help us to be like Paul and take advantage of our weakness because that means we're more devoted to you. God, I know there's a lot of discouragement in our city, in our town, and Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would empower us to be your ambassadors as we launch this Mercy of Lament project this week. God, I pray that you'd move with strength and power. Lord, we bless Donna this week as she's leading this project. We pray strength for her. We pray renewal for her. Lord, I pray healing over... She broke a rib a couple weeks ago. I pray healing over her ribs. Lord, I pray that she would have strong strength this week and that you'd protect us and the people that help as we hang these things in the tree. God, I thank you that you are good and faithful and that you put us on top of this hill for a strategic reason, reason to show compassion to this community. And Lord, I pray that this project would be seen and that you would use it to show compassion to this area. God, we love you so much and we thank you for your compassion. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.